This is the evening sermon from Hillcrest Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. For more information on Hillcrest Bible Church, please visit our website at hillcrestbible.org. Tonight I want us to look at two different passages. And my hope is that we will see between these two passages perhaps a connection that we haven't noticed before. So if you want to turn to Psalm 46, we'll begin there. And then eventually we'll leave a finger or a bookmark there and we'll go over to Hebrews 3 and 4. And then we'll come back to Psalm 46. I have a dual objective this evening. One is to focus on the connection between God's help and our rest. God's help and our rest. The other objective is to use the message this evening as perhaps an illustration of a methodology that we can utilize in studying Scripture. So it's something that's been helpful to me and I hope may be helpful to you. So if we get to the end of the message tonight and you've been encouraged by God's help and been encouraged to rest in His help, And if perhaps you've picked up something from this method that I will use tonight that you can take home and utilize yourself, uh, then then I'll be be grateful and we'll chalk that up to God's blessing on our time here together tonight. So let's ask for that blessing together and uh, then we'll jump into Psalm 46 and read that together. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have granted us time and space and a place where we can gather and look into your word. We thank you that you have given us your word, and that in that word we see that you are our help. And we pray that you would help us this evening, Lord, by opening our eyes and our ears to understand wonderful things out of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's, uh, let's read Psalm 46 together, and I'll be reading from the King James. Uh, hopefully you can follow along in the version that you have in front of you. Beginning in Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. So put a finger there, if you don't mind, and turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 3, and we'll be taking a look at the second half of Hebrews chapter 3, 
and also at Hebrews chapter 4. That's an extended passage uh, that I want us to read together. But I think it's important in order to gain some context for what I want to talk about tonight here, which is really toward the end of chapter 4. And hopefully it's acceptable to just jump right in here uh, with Hebrews because uh, we've just finished going through that in our adult Sunday school class. And I know that many of you um, have the blessing of participating in that. So you'll have good context. And for the rest of you, you may have some homework to do when we're done here to catch up. So in the last couple months, we've seen uh, in that Sunday school class that the book of Hebrews is an exhortation. And that's what Paul calls it at the end. I say Paul, not everyone agrees with that. And I might be wrong. But at the end of the book, the writer says, um, suffer this word of exhortation. So that's how the writer summarizes the book. It is full of calls and pleadings and warnings to the Jewish Christians who were tempted to throw in the towel. With the persecution they were enduring, the difficulties, perhaps some Judaizers coming and teaching, they were tempted to leave Christ and turn back to their previous form of worship. So what we're about to read here is one of the warnings. It's a strong warning. It's a warning to be careful, lest there be in any one of us, similarly, an evil heart of unbelief. And that's important, he says, because those who do not believe cannot enter God's rest. And then he develops that thought around this concept of rest on into chapter 4 and explains about the rest that remains for us as the children of God, as those who believe in Christ. And then finally, he talks about how we should strive to enter that rest. And then he talks about the way by which we find the grace that we need, the help that we need in that struggle. To continue in faith. So let's read that together. Uh, We'll start in chapter 3 and verse 12. And go to the end of verse uh, 16 at the end of chapter 4. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence Steadfast unto the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this manner, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. 
Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did or as God ceased from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, or to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, one of the things that strikes me about this passage is that it is a quizzical blend of challenges to strive and calls to rest. And I don't know if you noticed that as we went through, but I think the clearest example, although it's scattered throughout, the clearest example with maybe the language that seems most juxtaposed is in verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us strive to enter his rest. Let us strive to enter into rest. And and there's a lot of striving going on in this passage. If you go back to where we started in chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Take care, brothers, or take heed, watch out. That's a task that requires effort and vigilance. He says in verse 13, Exhort one another daily. He says to come alongside one another, to call one another forward. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, Hold fast. If we hold fast, take a firm grip and don't let go, that's effort. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, let us fear. That means to be struck with alarm or to be moved by fright. That doesn't sound like rest, not to me. And then in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, let us hold fast once again. So there's a lot of effort here. Uh, This past week at work, uh, we were having a meeting on a subject, and uh, one of the gentlemen there was commenting about a project they're trying to wrap up, and he said, yeah, there's one last implementation that we're currently efforting. And we all kind of looked at each other like, is that a word? (laughs) Um, And for your information, it's not a word. It is an effort to take a perfectly good noun and try to make it into a verb. Um, There are better words, I think, to use. But if there were such a thing as efforting, I think this passage would contain a lot of it. It says to strive, to take care, to fear, to exhort, to hold firm. And the key point here is that if we fail to believe, 
If we fail to believe, we will not be able to enter God's rest. So we must believe. Because the promise of God, which is the promise of rest, can only be entered into by faith. So we must strive to believe, and we must continue to believe. And we must strive to continue believing, and we must continue striving to believe. Never stopping, never drawing back. That's the call, that's the exhortation here in the book of Hebrews. Now, you may have noticed in chapter 4, starting in verse 4, that the writer begins to interweave this concept of rest with the concept of the Sabbath. If you look at that verse, verse 4, he says, For he spoke in a certain place of God, I'm sorry, of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So he's talking about how God, in establishing the Sabbath, ceased working because his work was complete. So he rested. His work was finished. And then similarly, if you go on down to verse 10, in drawing a parallel to us in our rest, he says, whoever has entered into God's rest has also stopped working, has ceased from his labor, just like God rested from his. So belief leads to rest. We talked about striving to believe. Now we're talking about how belief leads to rest. Again, it's, it's a bit quizzical at first. If you look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 18, we begin to see the other half of the equation. So over here we have belief and belief leading to rest. On the other hand, we have unbelief. And we see in verse 18 of chapter 3, it says, To whom did he swear that they would not enter into his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see how unbelief leads to disobedience, and we know that's true in our own lives, and we know it's true in the lives of the Israelites when we go back and look at that account of how they languished in the wilderness for 40 years because they didn't enter, and they didn't enter because they didn't believe. And that's the example that's being given here in Hebrews. So he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, those who had previously received the good news failed to enter in because of unbelief. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, he talks about us being careful that none of us fall by that same sort of disobedience. So you see this connection between unbelief and disobedience. So unbelief leads to disobedience, and disobedience leads to unrest, not being able to enter into the rest that God has given. So he says, fear that, in verse 1 of chapter 4, fear that sequence lest any one of you should seem to have failed to reach and enter into the promise of rest. So I know I'm kind of bouncing around through this passage, picking verses from here and there, but what, what hopefully is getting clearer here is that there are two outcomes, really in any situation where we face a struggle, certainly in the grand scheme of seeing this offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we respond to that. But in the daily life of the believer too, the challenge is, which of these paths will it be? Will it be faith that leads to ceasing from our own labors, that leads to rest? Or will it be unbelief that leads to disobedience, that leads to unrest? And those are the two paths before us. So this is a fairly high-stakes exhortation, right? Every thing critical, everything eternal about the outcome of the soul hinges upon entering into God's rest, which can only be done by faith. 
So this dividing point of faith and rest, or unbelief and disobedience, is critical. And if the stakes there were not high enough, they get amplified by verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. If you look at verse 12 there, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this belief or unbelief is not something that happens in, in the mysterious inner soul, dark and unknown to God. The word of God lays it bare. There's no fooling the Lord. He knows. And if we are disbelieving in the slightest, if we are disobedient in the slightest, he knows. And we must give an account to him. So if you're like me, that's, that's where the guilt begins to come in. And that's where the condemnation starts to take some hold. Because I know I don't always believe as I should. Sometimes I don't know that until I see myself disobeying. <laughs> and then I know the sequence has already begun, and I missed it in the first part. So I know I don't always obey as I should either, and I know I don't always cease from my own striving as I should. And I know that God knows all of that. So that's convicting, and that's discouraging sometimes. It's, it's shaming. And that's why I'm grateful for verses 14, 15, and 16. Such an excellent, excellent conclusion to this particular section of Scripture here. Such a beautiful part of this passage where the way of help and the way of rest are laid out for us plainly. If we feel condemnation for our disbelief, for our disobedience, what do we do? Well, verse 14 and 15 say, we have an advocate, we have a high priest. He's passed into the heavens, but that doesn't disconnect him from our struggle. He knows, and he sympathizes. He experienced the same temptations. It's amazing to think of Christ experiencing the temptation to not believe the truth. He is the truth. But he experienced these same temptations and struggles that we experience, but he did not succumb to them. Yet he sympathizes with us, and he is touched with our weaknesses. That's what it says in verse 15. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities, or our weaknesses. So in verse 16, it says we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And it's not just that we can, it's that we should. There's a call there. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. In these times of need, and when we do that, he says we'll find two things. One is mercy, and the other is grace to help. Mercy, one definition of that is that it's God's compassion. It's a really short definition. Here's a longer one that I like. It is his kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted, which is then joined with a desire to help them. Isn't that good? That's God's mercy. So he has goodwill toward us, even in our struggles to believe, even in our struggles to let go of our own works and rest in him. He sympathizes with that struggle. And he is kindly inclined toward us 
in our misery, in that struggle. And his heart and his hand are bent down toward us, extended to us. So that's mercy. That's the first thing we find when we come to the throne. The second thing we find is grace. Grace to help. Here's the definition of grace. It's even longer than the long definition of mercy. I thought this was good. It is the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. That is, it is the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian faith, knowledge, and affection, and kindles them to the exercise of the Christian virtues. That's grace. And it's grace to help. That word help means to aid. It comes from the concept of a rope that is used to bind, especially um, ships. So if there's a storm and you need, you may remember from uh, the Apostle Paul when uh, the physician Luke wrote that account of the uh, shipwreck. And it says that they used girds and helps. These are extra ropes that they're using to try to lash the ship together or hold the ship to its anchors. And so that is what this help is. It, it, it's like lashing a ship to a dock when the waves and the wind would otherwise uh, break it loose and th- blow it out to sea or dash it to pieces. So he says we, we don't have to go through that experience of being blown out to sea by these difficulties and struggles. We can be lashed to the dock. We can stay lashed uh, to the goodness of God and the truth of who He is. And what we'll find is that He is desirous and ready to help us. So we can come to the throne of grace and we can find real help. Help that holds us firm and keeps us fast when the wind and the sea and the storm of doubt and temptation and the oceans of unbelief we find ourselves in sometimes and all the condemnation that would sometimes swallow us up. We find that His mercy and His grace is always there to hold us fast in times of need. And now we're going to turn a sharp corner back over to Psalm 46. So if you want to flip back there with me to Psalm 46, as you're going, I'm going to posit that perhaps it's not actually that sharp of a corner after all. If you notice that last phrase that we just looked at, grace to help in time of need. Now think about the second half of verse 1 in Psalm 46. A very present help in trouble. Those sound like the same thing? They do to me. That's where I see a connection beginning to form between these two passages. Beginning to form. And that's where I guess this concept of this method of study kind of comes together for me. Sometimes we see in the New Testament, or really whatever passage of Scripture we're studying, uh, a concept that the Lord is teaching to us. Maybe it's like something we saw here in Hebrews where it's something that God will do for us. He will be our help uh, in time of need. Um, And then we will have some parallel passage or thought come to mind. And sometimes we stop there and we take encouragement from that parallel verse. I think we'd often do well to go back to the context of that parallel verse and see if what you may have is parallel concepts, perhaps whole parallel chapters. And we can begin to see in the light of one scripture what the other one means. Not just the verse, but the entire passage around it. So that's what we're going to do here tonight. 
I'm going to go back here to Psalm 46, and we're going to take a look at a few of these concepts that were raised by Hebrews 4. Maybe we've thought from Hebrews 4, well, what are some of these works that God has done that were finished before the foundation of the world? Or maybe we ask, what kind of God is this who has promised us his help? Or maybe we ask, what is God's rest like? What does it mean to find God's rest through belief? And then we can turn back to the Old Testament, a passage like Psalm 46, and we can better understand those concepts. So bear with me, I'm going to read Psalm 46 again. And this time I want you to be thinking about the works of God. See where that comes up. Think about rest and peace and the security that we find through God's help. And see if this psalm maybe isn't a little bit more vivid for you as we go through it this time. Uh, But before we read it, I want you to also be aware of the historical context of this psalm. I don't know if any of you have looked at this before. Some of you likely have, knowing how you study the word. Uh, We don't know for sure, but many, many, many very good scholars of Scripture, uh, students of the word, believe that this psalm was written by either Hezekiah or by Isaiah to commemorate the victory over Sennacherib, over Assyria. So I don't know if you remember that account, but if you go to Isaiah 37, which we won't spend any time in this evening, um, and read that at some point, you will see that this is where King Hezekiah in Judah, and actually all of Jerusalem essentially has been conquered down to just the stronghold of Jerusalem that's left. Judah has been conquered, um, and Israel, the northern tribes, have been conquered, and Assyria has just been sweeping the land. And the Rabshakeh has come, and he has spouted his uh, shameful mockery against the living God. And there are 185,000 war-proven, battle-hardened, highly successful Assyrian soldiers besieging the city. And they are ready to wipe Judah off the face of the map, and arrogantly so. But Hezekiah and Isaiah look to the Lord, and the Lord promises them deliverance. And in one night... The death angel comes through the Assyrian camp, and the next morning, 185,000 dead corpses. Now, again, before we read Psalm 46, I want to read you, this is not scripture, but it's good, I like it. Uh, Some of you may have read this in your literature classes five or 65 years ago, I don't know. But uh, this is what Lord Byron wrote in commemorating the destruction of the army of Sennacherib. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. But like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill, and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostril all wide, but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride. And the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf, 
and cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, and the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Ashur are loud in their wail, and the idols are broken in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. So now let's read Psalm 46. Think again about God and His works, how He makes wars to cease, how He is our refuge. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Psalm 46 is broken up into three paragraphs, each one ending with this musical notation, Selah, this instruction to pause and rest and consider. And we find in the first paragraph, the very first verse, that God is our refuge. So when we ask that question from Hebrews 4, what kind of help will we find? What kind of God will we find helping us when we come to the throne of grace? The answer is a refuge. You will find a God who is strong. You will find a God who is very present. He is ready to succor, ready to sustain. He's right at hand. That's what that means. In trouble. That means in the tight spots, in the straits, in the difficulties of life. So when we struggle with doubt and when disbelief in our lives is producing faithless disobedience, as it often does, when we find ourselves then convicted by the discerning word of God, as Hebrews 4 talks about, God is right there. He's present. He's strong. He's sheltering. And He's helping. And verse 2 says, then that the whole earth may be moving, the very ground that we're standing on may be giving away, giving way, and the mountains may be tossed into the sea, the ocean roaring, the mountains shaking. We do not need to fear. That's the kind of help that God is in our time of need. Now, if you look at the peace that we have in this next paragraph, starting in verse 4, this is, I think, just so beautiful. It talks about this river, not a river with chop and waves, uh, but a river with streams, peaceful streams of provision and fruitfulness. 
And in this place where the presence of God is, there is holiness and gladness and stability. So the heathen all around may be raging, and the kingdoms may be shaking, but God is blessing this place of peace. He's very strong in holding at bay the raging of the peoples and of the elements. Only his voice is required, and the earth melts. So this is the Lord of hosts that is with us. This is the peace that comes through his presence. This God of Jacob is our refuge, our protection, our shelter. See the rest there, the peace in that middle paragraph? How the power of the Lord grants us peace in his presence? The last paragraph, starting at verse 8, is an invitation to look to the Lord. To look to God, first to see his works, and then to see his exalted person. Verse 8 says, Come behold the works of the Lord. See what he has done. That should remind you of something from Hebrews chapter 4. God has worked. He worked. He completed his works before the foundation of the world. And he rested. He rested on the seventh day. And he instituted the Sabbath rest. And he calls us to believe in him and find his rest as we behold the works that he has done. And these works of deliverance that are specifically listed out here in this third paragraph are powerful works. He ends wars. I don't think it's over-spiritualizing to go back to Hebrews 4 and say, He ends the war of our unbelief. He breaks the bow. He cuts the spear in two. What about the bow and the spear of our disobedience to Him and our resistance to entering His rest? He breaks those down too, doesn't He? He burns the chariots in the fire. What about the chariots of temptation raging around us? What about the chariot of his own wrath? The wrath of God against sin is described in Scripture often as his appearing and approaching in a chariot. His chariots of wrath, the deep thunderclouds form from the hymn. He burns that chariot too. His chariot of wrath against our unbelief. The chariots of condemnation by which we are attacked and scattered. He burns those. He breaks the bow, he ends the war, and he brings the peace. Those are his works. So when we come boldly to the throne of grace, we can come and see what God has done. That's the first thing we see is the works that he has already completed. Come behold the works of the Lord. And then starting in verse 10, we see his exalted person. He says, to be still, rest, to believe, and be still. To know something. No, he says that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Because in helping us, in being our very present help in time of need, in trouble, he's not only saving his people, but he's exalting himself. He's lifting up his own name high by stooping in mercy and grace to aid us. So the Lord of hosts is with us. Verse 11 closes. I don't know if you thought about those words. Yahweh of armies, Emmanuel. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. The God of the trickster, of the strategist, the striver, the wrestler. That God is with us and he brings us peace. And it closes again with Selah. Pause and consider it. Rest. Look to God, see His works, 
see his person, rest and believe. Rest and find mercy. Rest and find grace to help in time of need from the God of Jacob, the one who is our refuge and our strength. And he causes that war within to cease. And he will be exalted in and through our struggles. So we draw near with confidence in this high priest who finished all these works before the beginning of the world is sending out his river of grace and its streams make us glad. So as I wrap up here this evening, I, I want to just summarize a bit. Um, when we look at Hebrews 4 and then we look at Psalm 46, in both cases we see help. And in both cases we see rest. And we see that the God of Jacob, with his powerful works, powerful enough to destroy 185,000 enemies in a breath, is the God who is our help when we come boldly to the throne of grace. When we turn to him in time of need. When we're doubting and disbelieving, when we're tempted to disobey, when we do disobey. When the um, condemnation comes upon us and we're aware that the Lord knows and that we have to give an account to Him. Then we come to the throne of grace and we be still. And we behold Him and we behold His works. And He goes out into the night for us and destroys the enemy. And we see Him and we see His very present help and we rest in that. And, you know, you might be thinking, well, Matthew, you don't, you don't know about my demons. The discouragements that I face and the temptations, the disbelief that I struggle with, and you're right in that. Um, only the heart knows its own sorrow, and only the Lord um, truly knows you as you really are and knows me as I really am. Uh, but I do know this. The Lord of hosts is a proven help. Even if you're the only one left standing, and even if you're under siege, and even if you're facing 185,000 powerful enemies, one pass, one night, done. So unless your situation is more dire than that, I don't think you have any doubt that the Lord is your very present help. So when we connect this, uh, this first passage with the second passage, and we see these pieces about rest and belief and help and the strength of God and how he gives rest. And we understand more about who this God is and how he helps us and the strength that he brings to our case and what it means that we find grace to help and how ready and present he is. And we understand more about the Lord as the mighty God of Jacob and how he is seated there in the midst of us and how it is that he is with us. Again, Yahweh of armies, Emmanuel with us as our help and as our rest. So I pray that will be an encouragement to us and that we will come and behold the works of the Lord, His works of power and mercy and grace, His work of ending the war of unbelief within us, His work of overcoming our host of enemies, our doubts and our disobedience and our condemnation, and that we will behold better and better the person of the Lord who is exalted above all these works that he has finished from before the foundation of the world. So I pray that we may look and believe, that we may be still and find help, that we may enter into his rest and see his deliverance. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word and how it tells us who you are and how it is that you work mightily on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you would help us to so boldly and readily come to the throne of grace to find help. We thank you, Lord, that your mercy and your grace are there, that you stoop to us, that you're touched with the feelings of our infirmities, and that you are very present in our struggle. We thank you that you will be exalted. You'll be exalted in the earth. You'll be exalted among the heathen. You'll be exalted in how you deliver your people. We thank you that you are our refuge and our strength, that you are the Lord of hosts and that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the evening sermon at Hillcrest Bible Church. In addition to our website, hillcrestbible.org, you can follow us on Facebook under Hillcrest Bible Church or through Twitter under Hillcrest Bible. You can also subscribe to the sermon podcast on our sermons page or directly in iTunes.